I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Nothing beats British summertime, when plants and trees are straining under the weight of their own produce and sunny groves tempt people and animals alike to stretch out and lie in the grass. Which is why today we're looking to celebrate uniquely British gardening stories in the full sunlight they deserve. We'll be taking a visit to the Great Orchard to RHS Wisley to hear about how they've been experimenting with their apple and pear trees. We'll be learning about Ellen Wilmot, an unsung 19th and early 20th century British horticulturist who inspired the names of dozens of garden plants while cultivating a somewhat prickly reputation. And finally, we'll be diving into the marvellous world of a uniquely popular edible crop, watercress. Let's get stuck in, shall we? Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. I don't know about you, but I love strolling through an orchard during a long summer ramble. But have you ever thought about what goes into cultivating fruit trees and how to ensure that your own apple and pear trees are as healthy as they can be without disrupting the natural world around them? Let's take a trip to RHS Garden Wisley to ask the experts there. My name is Sheila Das. I'm a garden manager here at RHS Garden Wisley. I look after our students and apprentices, our edibles area, our Member Seed Scheme and our Wellbeing Garden, along with my very talented teams. It's really exciting. Our orchard at Wisley is about 11 acres, so it's a large space and it was planted after the war in what was in the 50s and 60s a very accepted way of planting an orchard in rows with all of your apples together, all of your pears together. This made it easy for tractors to go up and down to maintain the crop, to feed it, to kill pests and to spray chemicals on it. We aren't doing that anymore, so we aren't going to spray chemicals on our orchard anymore. We don't want to do that, and it's not the right thing to do. We also want to look after our soil better, so driving tractors up and down it all the time is not helpful. That does cause compaction. So we're moving away from that kind of growing in rows and using chemicals, and in the coming years, people will start to see our orchard soften in the shape of its design. So we'll have groves of planting, we might mix things up so we won't have all the apples in one place, all the pears in one place. We'll mix them up. Again, that will confuse some of what we perceive to be as pests, create a lovely habitat for all sorts of other bird life and things that will predate the things we don't want, and just generally copy nature. Nature doesn't have all of everything in one place. It has a good mixture. We'll introduce a lot of understory planting, so that's more at the ground level, so things that will help to process and cycle nutrient that will act as a living mulch if you like and also again create a nice habitat for a variety of wildlife. 
part of the experiment in our new orchard, we're going to look at underplanting and how we can plant different things. So we're going to let some brambles grow around the place because that's a great berry, but we're also going to grow some hybrid berries, some more cultivated berries that will fruit at different times. We might experiment with growing them underneath our fruit trees. So that will do two things. That will create a nice habitat for all the beneficial animals and insects that we want in the orchard. It will create some fruit, which the birds will help themselves to a little bit, but hopefully we'll get some too. And I think that's important to remember. We can net things over if we really want all of the crop ourselves, or we can say, okay, let's see. Let's see how much the birds take or how much I have. So that's what we'll do in and around our orchard trees. So rather than just having the tree and grass and that's it and keeping the grass low cut, we actually want to create more understories of planting. The other thing that that does is it helps to actually conserve moisture. You think, oh, more plants will mean they're taking less moisture from the soil, but actually plants cycle water as well. So they release moisture as they grow, as well as taking it up from the ground. So you create a much healthier and more humid and kind of dynamic wet environment. So growing a different variety of plants underneath your trees is a really healthy thing to do. One of my favourite pears, actually, is called a Gorham pear. It's really, really juicy. There's a funny thing about pears. If I buy a pear from the supermarket, I can't eat it. It makes my ears itch. Don't know. Somebody once said to me it's to do with the chemicals they use on them. Somebody once said to me it's to do with the fact that pears have these funny little cells in that are quite sort of jerky in shape called sclerids, but I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. Never had that with a fresh pear that I've had from this orchard. And my particular favourite is a Gorham pear. It's really, really juicy and sweet. In terms of apples, the good thing about apples is, and the thing that people don't realise from the poultry selection of cultivars that are presented in our supermarkets, is that you can have a fresh apple, probably from about August time, all the way up to the end of November, picked off the tree, if you buy the right cultivars. So I'm actually doing this at home. I'm growing just single stem cordons, which is one single stem of the plant, so I might get about a dozen apples off it, but I've picked different varieties so they're all fruit at different times. So I'll have fresh apples just straight from the plant, which is really exciting. Plus then hopefully some that I can store for a little bit over the winter as well. One of my favorite apples in the orchard is one called winter banana that comes particularly late. So you can pick a, you know, you can have a winter banana into November and that's a lovely apple as well. I'm a real sucker for a kind of really nice, tangy, juicy, fresh sort of poxy type apple. For someone who's thinking of starting their own orchard, I think that the main thing to think about is diversity and your orchard habitat. It's not just about the plants or the trees that produce your fruit crops. It's about everything else and creating a really lovely ecosystem that's going to look after everything for you. So diversity in planting in an orchard you don't have to plant everything in straight rows. In fact, I would encourage people not to. It's not the way that nature does it. So mix up your crops, treat your soil with respect, try not to disturb it, let it build up its own fungal life and community, and it will take care of your crops. So you will end up with some lovely apples to eat if you grow an orchard in that way. And you'll also end up enjoying, actually, all of the other life that comes to enjoy your orchard. Now, let's leave Sheila's office and head down to the orchard to meet one of her gardeners at work. Hello, my name's Liz Mooney and I work with the edibles team at RHS Wisley. And we are now standing in our orchard in amongst some of our old bush apple trees. Over the coming months, we're going to be doing a range of jobs in the orchard, such as walking the orchard regularly to look for signs of pests or disease. I mean, if you see diseases such as mildew, you'd be wanting to prune it out to try and help control it. 
We're also doing something to try and help with weed control in the orchard because it's such a big area. So in particular, we've been spreading some wood chip underneath the trees to try and control and suppress the weeds coming up to help reduce their vigour, to help the trees grow up a bit more. We've also been doing various bits of underplanting in them, so we've been planting things like rhubarb, and we're looking at planting some comfrey. We're just experimenting with different ways of planting. Rather than having the monoculture of just apple trees, we are experimenting with different ways of planting and allowing more wild flowers to grow up and trying to turn it into a more biodiverse habitat. So when we're growing in the orchard here, we use different techniques that a home gardener can use. The mulch you spread around the tree is also good organic matter that can break down. So in particular, if you're spreading things like composts and so forth, that will provide nutrients to feed the tree. So feel free to give your tree a bit of love and spread some compost around its base. If you do things like this and prune your apple trees appropriately in the winter months, it will increase your chances of getting a good harvest of apples come the autumn. My favourite type of apple is a cultivar called Pixie, which is one which was actually bred here at Wisley. And it's a lovely, crisp, quite sweet apple blushed with red, and I just think it's gorgeous. I've got a Pixie apple on my allotment here, but we have also grow it in Wisley, and we've actually got some trained forms as well in the World Food Garden. I love walking through the orchard here at Wisley, especially with some of the changes we're making with being able to see more wildflowers coming up, with putting up some bird boxes and trying to just make it into a more biodiverse ecosystem. It's really interesting to see how it's all impacting the wildlife around here. You can smell the fresh scent of a wood chip as you walk through the orchard and take the chance to try and spot some of the wildlife that we hope will be moving in. Thank you, Sheila Das and Liz Mooney. Listening to that made my mouth water. I love growing apples. I've got a couple of trees on the allotment and there's one tree that I'm particularly looking forward to getting a crop from, which is in my parents' garden. They live down in Devon and their village, in common with many, many villages across the UK, has its own local apple variety. They live in a place called Bradninch and there's a Bradninch black apple. And when I found out about this, I thought I've just got to grow it because it's kind of beetroot coloured. If you've ever had like a beetroot smoothie or beetroot hummus, it's that kind of really, really vivid pinky purple colour and it's just amazing and it keeps its colour when it's cooked. It's really rare. There's thousands of varieties of apple in the UK and there are lots of local ones that are just kind of hanging on by a thread. And I went on a course a couple of years ago about how to chip bud, which is a really kind of efficient way of propagating your apple tree. So you just take a tiny little piece of bud and insert it in the bark of your host tree. And a couple of them took and I'm watching them grow. And you can see that because it's a really red apple, the leaves of the bit that I've grafted on have actually got this sort of purplish tinge. So we're pruning away the rest of the tree as this piece grows. So yeah, that's the apple that I'm really looking forward to growing. And in terms of kind of keeping the apple trees healthy, I really like Liz's tip about putting compost and other kinds of organic matter around the trees. It's particularly useful for young or unhealthy trees. It's really good for just increasing the nutrients and the moisture in the soil and giving trees that need it a bit of a helping hand. Moving on from quintessentially British fruits to British salad leaves. Did you know there's a fascinating science and history behind growing and harvesting watercress? We spoke to Tom Amory, Managing Director of the Watercress Company, which is based in Allsford and has been going for 120 years. He enlightened us about the rich and wonderful culture surrounding it, from festivals in its honour to an entire railway line. But I'll let Tom explain what makes this plant so unique. 
watercress is such an easy crop to have a relationship with because it's got so many different characteristics which make it so special. So we start off by using these tiny seeds, which you wouldn't believe how much exciting DNA is packed into this seed. And through its life, it takes on all sorts of visual characteristics. So when it first starts to grow, it looks like many other plants because it's just two small leaves and a stem. But as the crop grows, it starts to show its true characteristics, the shape of its leaf, which is quite unique, but also it's multi-branching. And at the point which we tend to harvest the crop, it's quite small, it may be 15 centimeters, but if you left it for its entire life, it could be one or two meters long. As it grows, it produces these amazing aerial roots that literally float within the water and suck up all the nutrition that's in the water that it grows in. And eventually, as it works its way up through, it starts to respond to all sorts of characteristics. And one of the things that's the most powerful part is whether it's growing or whether it's been harvested, it can actually respond to gravity. So if you push the watercress over or the wind blew on it, it will stand up even at night. And as the crop grows, it eventually gets to the end of its sort of growing life and will start to produce flowers. And those flowers will start the whole process off again. And each plant can produce thousands of seeds and we capture those seeds and then we start the process again the following year. We harvest the watercress every day and the moment it's harvested, it's one of those crops that we have to chill it really fast because what we're trying to do is lock in all of the amazing nutrients found within watercress because those are the nutrients that we want to absorb within our bodies when we're eating watercress. So there are a couple of key characteristics that when you chew watercress, it activates a chemical compound and that chemical compound can be in your bloodstream on chewing within minutes. And it has an amazing effect because it uh, activates the epigenome in our body and it can trigger certain genes to turn on. So that process in itself is totally unique to watercress because the compounds found in watercress are totally unique and they have a very specific process of protecting our DNA. So watercress is a crucifera, which means that the flowers are identifiable because they're in a cross shape. And it's part of this brassica family, which is the same family as broccoli or cabbage. And they all originated in Asia. And somehow or another, that plant worked its way across, which we believe would have been through human intervention. Generally, watercress is grown outside of the equator. It needs that temperate climate. So it would have come across the UK and found a very easy place to grow. And the water that's found in the UK in the areas that we grow watercress is very good for the cultivation of watercress. But if you were to travel around the UK, you'll find watercresses in a lot of streams and rivers. And therefore, once it did arrive, it started to populate and settle itself in very, very easily. So watercress did transcend social boundaries for one simple reason, is that during the winter, maybe 150, 200 years ago, the only way that you could get vitamin C was by consuming watercress. It was a reliable source. So 
when the ground was frozen and you were struggling to get out certain root vegetables, which were a great source of vitamin C as well, watercress was still there because it was grown in water and the water didn't freeze. And therefore it was harvested right the way through the winter. Now, vitamin C is classless. It's something that we all need. And therefore the association between everyone consuming watercress was really important. Dig for Britain was an important period for watercress because the farms were really productive and the employment of the teams that were growing the watercress could be all ages. It's quite a unique crop because it's a mono production. So the beds that we're growing in now have had watercress growing in them year in, year out, every month, right the way through all of the years that go back. So it was naturally a great crop to get the support during the war years. The Watercrest Festival in Oldsford just celebrated its 90th year, and that 90th year allows us really to look back over all the work we've done over the last 20 years to try and make people understand a little bit more about this simple salad, but also to help sort of promote it as the king of the greens. We chose Oldsford as the capital of the watercress industry for a very simple reason. The, the farms there are the largest, there's the most number of farms per square mile, but also the internationally um, sort of acclaimed watercress line has been there and it's still promoted as the watercress line. The watercress line is a train line that runs from Oldsford to London. People travel to, to go on the steam railways, but also to understand a little bit more about the relationship with steam and locomotive transportation and how it made our industry so successful. Well, the obvious sight in the Oldsford Watercrest Festival is people eating watercress as they're walking around, which is great to see, but there are some quite unique events and there's a watercress eating championships, which puts mainly locals against each other and how fast they can eat an 80 grand bag of watercress, which is always entertaining and causes probably the most amount of sort of crowd pulling throughout the whole day. So the first stage of growing champion watercress is to get the right seed. Watercress is known botanically as nasturtium officinale. And a cress is effectively a small plant and therefore you can have many different types of cresses, but the one you need for watercress is nasturtium officinale. So generally watercress does need to germinate at about 25 degrees. So it needs to be in moist conditions. And the reason why it needs to be in moist conditions is you're basically, you're simulating where the seed naturally in the wild would fall from the seed pods and it would potentially fall into the water and it would float on the surface of the water down to the river's edge. But it generally needs to grow in damp areas. So that sort of idea is protecting itself from germinating in dry conditions. So it needs to stay wet right the way through germination. Sow the seeds thinly because you don't want to get any damping off because the seed is so small. And what you need to do is really start taking it through its stages. So initially that cotyledon will be very delicate. Ideally, you want to avoid any pricking out. You want to sow it in its location and take it on through. And if you've got quite a lot of the seeds, instead of pricking it out, what you could do is thin it out and just take a few of the competitor seeds away from it. Depending on the temperature, you need to be outside obviously after germination, but you don't want it to go below 
really 10, 12 degrees. The best time to harvest watercress is when it gets to about 20 centimeters. And what you need to do is you need to cut the watercress at the top. But remember that every point where you've got a node, you can get either a root or you can get a stem. So if you wanted to multiply your crop, once you've got the crop established, you can actually cut just very small cuttings and you can put those back into the soil and bulk up. So if you've got quite long stems, instead of leaving the stems long once you've harvested your first cuts, you can take some of those intermediate stems, maybe a few centimeters long, and place those into the soil alongside your existing crop. And what it will do is it will cut and come again. So it just keeps on growing back. So I would really recommend you go out there, you, you, you get your uh, watercress, you can start growing it. Really enjoyed the health benefits of watercress. Wow people with the amazing dishes you can make that watercress packs all that flavor. And basically enjoy that kind of relationship with food and one of the UK's most famous salads and most nutritious salads at the same time. Thanks to Tom Emery. I love the fact that there's a whole festival devoted to watercress. You know, you sometimes think about food festivals as being something that you get in Spain or Italy, but it's great to hear that we have these things alive and well in this country. And even a steam railway, the watercress line, who knew? I've grown watercress before. When I was a kid, my dad built a little stream next to our pond in the garden and it had a special bit so that we could actually grow watercress. It was a little, little trough within the stream that we filled with gravel and we stuck bits of watercress from the supermarket into it and to our absolute amazement, they all rooted and we had this lovely little, little patch of watercress that we used to pick for, for years and years. You have to kind of keep it really, really quite wet or you can grow it in pots stood in a saucer of water. The thing is to kind of make sure that it doesn't go stagnant. So if you keep it in a big bowl of water, you would need to kind of keep replacing the water. Growing it in soil in pots stood in a sauce is probably the best way. So if you're looking to add some peppery zing to a salad, why not give watercress a try? Now onto another British great, Helen Wilmot. And if the name Wilmot rings a bell, it's because there are a few garden plants named after her. A favourite of mine is the hardy plumbago, Serratostigma wilmotianum, which has lovely sky blue flowers in autumn. It's a beautiful little shrub with lovely reddish leaves that really set off those very pure blue flowers in September and October. Another is the sea holly, Eryngium giganteum, which is also known as Miss Wilmot's ghost for a less than complimentary reason. But the myth and the mystery surrounding Ellen Wilmot is richer than you can imagine, which is why we spoke to Sandra Lawrence, the author of Miss Wilmot's Ghosts, The Extraordinary Life and Gardens of a Forgotten Genius. Miss Wilmot has quite a chequered reputation these days, and it's not necessarily because of anything she did, but more because there's been a bit of a gap in information, and she got sort of rather lost. So in the absence of that, a whole bunch of rumours started circulating. Due to a system of Chinese whispers, you would get all these half-baked stories that started getting a little life of their own and getting more and more embroidered until you get the ones that we have today. So the most obvious one, of course, is the Miss Wilmot's ghost story, which it's a particularly prickly sea holly that 
has been called Miss Wilmot's ghost for a long time. It's a, a silvery, prickly plant, very beautiful actually. And the rumour has it that she would carry seeds of this plant in her pockets for scattering in other people's gardens when they weren't looking. And because it's a biennial, it would be two years before they would actually notice that they would come. I wouldn't believe that one. It's a modern story, but it's a very good shorthand for how a lot of people have thought of her over the past 90 odd years. I'm Sandra Lawrence and the book is Miss Wilmot's Ghosts, The Extraordinary Life and Gardens of a Forgotten Genius. So a lot of people want to know whether the stories about Ellen Wilmot are true, but we need to delve a bit deeper into it to discover exactly what she was about. To start with, she wasn't really that well educated. She had the typical girls' education, which in Victorian times was pretty poor. It was really just a way of getting a husband. So they would learn really accomplishments. They would learn how to do a little bit of French because that was very chic. They would learn some simple stuff, an embroidery, and music. She was an excellent musician. But they didn't learn the subjects that boys would learn, the sort of hard subjects, the sciences or mathematics. So she actually taught herself a lot of these things. She learned botanical Latin by herself. She got in tutors to help her with her languages, to help her with astronomy and microscopes and botany. So actually the way she learned stuff was often off her own bat. Wally's estate was actually begun by her father, who actually really loved to collect bits of land. They started out buying a relatively small estate. And then every time a piece of land came up for sale, he'd buy a bit of it. And then he started building stuff as well. And Ellen took this on and she kept buying stuff and adding to it as well. And in the middle of it, she created this extraordinary garden that had various different areas. There was a wild garden area, but there was also a walled garden, the magnificent alpine garden. She had an old orchard garden that had these sort of rockeries that you could walk around. So she created this amazing garden, but really only after her father died. Her mother was increasingly frail, so increasingly, Ellen took over from her and the planting became her own. And um, we recently discovered a plant list from 1908, which tells us that she had 10,000 varieties, different varieties of plants in that garden in 1908. So everything sort of came to a head in 1897. She'd only been a member of the RHS for a very short amount of time, but within that time she had rocketed within the organisation. She was at a peak. She was really winning prizes left, right and centre. Everybody knew her. She was on committees. It was all incredible. And then in 1897, in order to celebrate Victoria's 60th anniversary, her Diamond Jubilee, the RHS decided to create a brand new medal. And this is one that still comes down to today. The Victoria Medal of Honour is still the highest award that you can get in gardening and only 63 people can ever have it at one time. But at this particular point, Victoria had only been on the throne for 60 years, so there were just 60 medals. And out of those 60, they put aside two for women to win. And one of them was Gertrude Jekyll. The other was Ellen Wilmot. And what's been 
really puzzling down the decades is why she didn't turn up to collect that medal. I mean, this is quite bizarre because this was the shindig of the century. They'd already decided that she was in the running from January that year. She'd known she was a medal winner in June. She had an invitation arrived on the 26th of June. She knew that she was going to be there. And yet on that day, her seat was empty. After this, it wasn't the absolute end of things. And she did really make an effort to get herself back into the society. And she papered over things, but there is a little something that seems to have changed in the way that people looked at her after that. That no longer she was the girl wonder, the young thing, this incredible young Turk. And suddenly she was a woman who had her own ideas and not everybody was that comfortable with that. Never again was she received in quite such an open way. There are points where you read in her letters that she feels a little bit lonely, that she has individual friends, but as a group, they seem to be ganging up on her just a little bit. After her no-show at the Victoria Medal of Honor ceremony, she had a very short time of being actually very low, but then she pulled herself up by her bootstraps and went into her most productive period when she was winning all manner of gold medals and certificates and the silver Banksian medal and all manner of things. I genuinely don't know how she managed to do it all. But all this time, she was sort of outspending herself. What she had inherited was a whole lot of capital. She didn't have that much in the way of investments and nobody had taught her how to invest. So she just spent. She wasn't used to money not turning up. Her finances just collapsed in on themselves and she started borrowing heavily. And then she just started running out of money full stop. However, to be seen to be running out of money was just something you couldn't do. So she started getting this reputation for being a miser and a spendthrift at the same time. I don't know quite how that works, but she got a reputation for never paying people on time and for penny pinching all the time because she couldn't be seen to not have the money to pay people. She developed this sort of carapace of eccentricity, which would only grow as she got older because it was easier to look a bit odd than to lose face. And this would just continue throughout the rest of her life. Ellen Wilmot had no intention ever of slowing down. One of the things about being an older person when you've been so active and you have no intention of stopping being active is that you have to find a way of doing the things that you used to want to do. And for Ellen Wilmot, she no longer had a motor car and a chauffeur. She no longer had any money, 
but she still wanted to be involved in life. She still wanted to go to shows. She still wanted to take part in the RHS committees and garden. So she used to find ways of doing that. And one of them was that she would just take the train instead of a carriage or a car. The station was two miles away from Morley Place. It was a very shady, tree-lined place with very few houses at the time. And she began to start worrying that she couldn't really defend herself. She was going home alone to a place that was well known for being filled with priceless antiques, where she was only going to be on her own. Nobody else lived there. So I think it's not unreasonable that she decided to carry a revolver in her bag. She was comfortable with firearms. She was a member of the Essex Rifle Society. So I don't find that amazing that she would carry a revolver with her. And yes, I found a knuckle duster in her stuff as well. And that doesn't surprise me either. She was very slight, a very small woman. Why not? I think that what I would take away from Ellen's story is that whatever the privations that she had, and by the end, there were many, she never stopped having financial problems after about 1907. But the one thing she never did was give up. She never stopped fighting. She never stopped believing in her own abilities. She never stopped going out, doing stuff, joining in creating to the end. She was always having these mad schemes, virtually none of which worked, but that's sort of not the point. The point is to keep striving. And I think the best things you can take for that is not Miss Wilmot's ghost, but her spirit. Thanks to Sandra Lawrence. I had heard of Ellen Wilmot, partly because I went to college in Essex, not far from Worley Place, and I remember exploring Worley Place, oh gosh, it must be about 20 years ago now, and it was such a kind of romantic garden. It had kind of gone a little bit to rack and ruin. It's become a nature reserve now, and I love to think of the kind of the spirit of Ellen kind of still pottering about in the garden. Like Ellen, I would love to garden until my final days. I suppose the central mystery of Ellen's life is why she missed that RHS awards ceremony. And Sandra posits in the book that it was due to a love affair. Ellen lost her lover, Georgiana Tufnell. And Georgiana had to marry a man 35 years older than her to secure her financial position. And that marriage was due to be the day after the awards ceremony. So heartbroken, Ellen fled to France and her life, her reputation, never really recovered from that blow. That would explain why she would miss such an important ceremony. These are the stories that often don't get told. It's good to have an awareness of sometimes there are a lot of stories behind the stories. But if you want to find out more, get the full detail of this really interesting story, then I can't recommend Sandra's book enough. And if you're local to Essex, why not take a leisurely trip to Worley Place Nature Reserve this summer? I hope today's episode has helped shake off the remaining spring cobwebs to embrace the sunshine of summer. I'm busy on the allotment at the moment, weeding. The weeds are loving this warm weather. Watering as well, because it's really important time to keep watering. So my young runner beans, my young French beans, my sweet corn, pumpkins and squashes, 
just giving them that watering and some regular feeding as well to really get them growing and particularly if you're growing stuff in pots now is the time to be on it with the feeding if it's veg if it's blueberries in pots if it's flowers give them a feed because the days are long there's plenty of light it's nice and warm this is the time of year that they can really make the most of it i really love june because it's that moment of the year when the balance between the amount of work that you do and what you can pick starts to shift and you can really begin to enjoy the fruits of your labour. Until next time, from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.